There's an old Yiddish proverb, what's truer than the truth? The story. And that's how we feel about this podcast, The Story Voice. Because even though other storytelling podcasts are around and many are good, Story Voice is a little different. You see, to us, stories, personal and traditional, stretch the boundaries of the human heart. I am Hank Rubicek, and I'm going to be alternating with an impressive cluster of hosts that I ambushed from our long-running So What's Your Story series on Houston's Specifica affiliate, KPFT. These are hosts who also happen to be award-winning storytellers. The story voice differs in both content and approach, and I aim to prove it with samples of what we do and what I think you are going to love. Our friend Kent Keith, and a great storyteller, serves up this poignant piece and proves that when you tell a story, it's all you. Raw, unfiltered, you. Here's the story. I received my first friend, my first best friend in my life when I was five years old. My family had just moved to a new neighborhood and the kid across the street came over and asked if we could be friends. And I thought, I don't have anything else to do. Sure, why not? For the next many years, Mike and I palled around in each other's backyards almost every day until his dad took a job in another city and moved Mike and his family away. And that hurt. I found my best next best friend in sixth grade. John and I sat next to each other in Miss Meyer's class. And we were best friends all the way through high school when he went off to the Marine Corps and I went off to college to be a pot-smoking liberal. And that separation hurt. My best friend in college was Pat, and Pat made the stupid mistake of dating my persnickety sister, Allison. And when Allison broke up with Pat, Pat broke up with me, and our best friendship dissolved into nothing. And that dissolution, that hurt. I didn't have another best friend for many years. And then when I was 35, I met my best, best friend. And that was Daryl. And I fell in love with Daryl almost immediately. And I didn't fall in love with him in a loverly kind of way because Daryl and I weren't lovers. But I fell in love with him in a best friend kind of way. And Daryl and I did everything together. When he got married, I stood up for him. When I lost my son, he stood by me. I loved Daryl. And in 2012, he started experiencing some pains in his chest. And after many visits to the doctor and, and a lot of second opinions, Daryl and his wife Martha decided that it would be best to have this surgical procedure done of a serious yet relatively routine nature. And they, they uh, scheduled that surgery for July 24th of 2012. On July 19th, I left on a backpack trip that I already had planned, fully expecting that when I returned on the 29th that my, my, my friend would be well on his way to a speedy recovery. But that's not what happened. Instead, when I came down off the mountain, I saw I had a missed call from my, from, from Daryl's brother, Greg. 
And when I returned Greg's call, he told me that something terribly wrong had happened in the surgery. And could I please come home as soon as possible? When I got back to Houston, I went uh, up to the hospital as soon as I could, and I found my friend in a coma. The, the skin on his nose was black from lack of circulation. And that same black death was in his fingers and his hands and up above his wrists. And it was in his toes and his feet and crawling up his legs. My best friend was going to have to have a quadruple amputation. And the thought of that was gruesome and horrifying. After Daryl came out of the coma, they scheduled that amputation. And after that surgery, something profound happened. Where my friend's body was chopped and quartered, his spirit multiplied and grew. I found our conversations peppered with comments like, you know, it's not too bad, I'll never have to buy gloves again. Or one day I went to visit him and he said, hey, can't I had a great day today, no toe jam. Or my favorite, you know, I don't know what everybody's all worked up about. My penis is working just fine. But as magnanimous and gigantic as Daryl's spirit was, his body continued to wither. His mechanical heart gave out. His blood became infected. His heart, his kidneys were failing. At the end of November of that year, Daryl asked his family to let him go. I saw Daryl for the last time on the evening of November 29th. And I asked him if he was afraid. And he told me yes. And then I got as close to him as I could. And I told him, Daryl, you are the best, best friend. And he looked at me with his jaundiced eyes and he said, I love you. Daryl sailed on the next morning and that hurt and that still hurts. Mm, mm, mm. That story always, always moves me to a place I've never been before. Kendall Pickens was a seventh grader at Maryland Performing and Visual Arts Middle School in Houston when he told this tale on the air. He is the consummate crowd pleaser that Kendall, let's listen to him. Well, it was a hot summer night. I was sound asleep in my game room when suddenly I heard the alarm chime beep. I was confused. Who could be at the door at midnight? So I checked my windows, which were kind of foggy, and I saw what made out to be a couple of Hispanic males loading up a truck. At that moment, I had a fully fledged panic attack because I knew we were getting robbed. I slammed myself a couple times to try to pull myself together, and I went to my brother's room, who was sound asleep. I gently picked him up and took him to my sister's room. The good news was my sister was up, but the bad news was she was FaceTiming her boyfriend. She was arguing with me, telling me that I'm crazy and we're not getting robbed, and she really just didn't want to hang up with her boyfriend. So then I had to think of something on the spot, and I started to fake cry, thanks to my great acting teacher, Miss Wood, and she believed me, and we turned off the lights and hid in her closet. Call 911, I said. She told me we had to call my mom and dad first. We called both my mom and my dad. 
None of them answer. So then we had to go to plan C, calling the cops. When we called 911, the operator picked up. 911, what is your emergency? I'm a 13-year-old boy hiding in a closet and we're getting robbed. It was funny because she was so calm and I was freaking out. Then she replied with, help is on the way. We were waiting and waiting and waiting and the cops were a no-show. I was crying and shaking. I was sweating. My heart was pounding up and down. I was a hot mess. And then we heard a voice. I thought it was a robbers and I was praying to God, if you get me out of this one, I owe you. And the voice came closer and closer. Miles? Kendall? Haley? We creaked the closet door open and to my surprise, my mom was standing right there. What are you doing? She screamed at us. And we could have asked her the same question. Then we told her, we sat her down and told her all of our stories. Then she told us it was my aunt, my uncle, and her loading up a truck for the garage sale they had the very next day. And my mom's side of the family's Hispanic. And then she said that the cops did come to our house, but she told them that no one was getting robbed here and redirected them to another house. Then at that moment, we knew we had to call the cops back. When we called the cops, we made a big apology and they weren't too happy. We're probably on their wanted list now. And all my mom had to say from this whole entire event is thanks for racial profiling me, Kendall. I laughed, but it was sadly true. Then I told my mom one thing, don't tell dad who was asleep through all this madness. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. We love showcasing our kids, bright, creative, and articulate. You know, expression isn't just important to those of us on the story voice. It's everything. Well, Kendall is a character not unlike five-year-old Tommy with an insatiable curiosity. Tommy was someone who asked the tough questions but rarely got acceptable answers. Dangerous for youngins because they deserve the truth. And when they don't get it, well, they might make things up. Well, one morning... Tommy went up to his mother and asked, Mommy, how old are you? And Mommy said, well, Tommy, we, we don't like to answer those kind of questions. Mommies never answer questions like our age. Okay, okay, Tommy says, well then, how much do you weigh? Well, Mommy reports, I don't want to respond to that one either, Tommy. Mommies don't like to talk about their weight either. Okay, Tommy's getting a little frustrated. How come you and Daddy got a divorce? Well, Mommy concedes, well, you know what? That's a pretty good question. And one day, I'm going to explain it to you. But right now, you're much too young. Well, Tommy is just upset as can be. He's asking all the right questions. He's not getting answers. So now, he's forced to turn to his best friend, Bobby, another five-year-old. And he asks Bobby, Bobby, do you have a hard time getting answers from people, especially your mom? Oh yeah, Bobby says, but you know what? My dad's a police officer and he knows how to get information from everyone. All you have to do is take a look at their driver's license and you'll know everything there is to know. Well, they're best friends. Tommy believes them. So the next day, Tommy gets downstairs, digs into mom's purse, and then walks up to her proudly before breakfast and says, Mommy, I know how old you are. Well, Tommy, now I told you I wasn't going to tell you that information. You don't have to. You're 32. Well, that's a pretty good guess, Tommy. And Tommy continues, I know how much you weigh. You know how much I weigh? 
Tommy, I told you that I wasn't going to respond to that. Well, you don't have to because you weigh 118 LBSs. Hmm. Not a bad guess, Tommy. Not a bad guess. And I know why you and Daddy got a divorce. Now, I told you, Tommy, in a demanding way. I am not going to explain that to you. You're a young kid. You're five years old. You're never going to understand, but one day I'll explain it to you. And Tommy replies, Mommy, you don't have to. I know why you and Daddy got a divorce. Because you got an F in sex. Okay, now you're saying, that's no joke, that's a story. Right, but it's also a story. You see, everyone is a storyteller. We just need to make sense out of the world, so we use words and gestures to create symbols, images. See, if you like to tell jokes, for example, well, use it as a method to develop your telling skills. Capture your listener's attention. Be sure to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Conflict creates the plot and the core of your story. The story had a punchline and ending, but every story needs a solid conclusion. Might be a funny one, might be sad, might be confusing or frustrating, confounding or unexpected. Some stories have happy endings, some don't. You know, another way to build up your telling skills is to go to www.houstonstorytellers.org. Now, you don't have to live in Houston or even come close in order to experience the best storytelling group in the land. Just go to its Zoom link on the site, and from 7 to 8.30 Central Time on the fourth Tuesday of every month, you're going to meet and share stories with the greatest group around. You know, I delivered uh, this story when my childhood friend died a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, being in the world of storytelling is great because you make so many friends, and I love them so dearly. It's so fabulous to meet these great friends. And it always reminds me about how you cherish your friends as you get older. I had that kind of a friend. Mike was his name. And uh, Mike died two years ago. Uh, it was amazing that, frankly, he lived as long as he could did. He had a kidney transplant. He had uh, small cell lung cancer, both lungs, heart transplant. He was a mess. But he was strong-willed, and he made it as long as he could. He and I were very close. We saw each other in school all the time. We met each other when we were four years old in nursery school. We went through elementary school, nursery school, uh, elementary school, junior high, high school. After that, we talked every month when we were in college. And then when we became bona fide adults, maybe every few months, but never more than five or six months until he was placed in hospice. Then I called him every day. I called him because I wanted to go through memories. I wanted to share thoughts with him. I wanted him to know how I felt about him. And there was no better way than to go through memories to talk about times that meant so much to us, that defined us, that explained who we were. The last night of his life, I didn't know that this would be the night that he would die. It was the last night of his life and his wife, Randy, who I also knew very, very well, a good friend of mine, too, told me, Hank, um, when you talk to Mike tonight, he has no energy. He doesn't have much time. He won't be able to respond to you. So I'm just going to put the phone to his ear, talk to him, but don't expect a response. So I, uh, I got on the phone and I said, Mike, um, 
Do you remember Mrs. Bradford? When we were in kindergarten, she was awful. What a terrible person she was. You know, we thought she was about 95, but in reality, she was probably 35, and she was really abrupt. And I told him, Mike, you remember that uh, I was really nervous about school. My mother, as a matter of fact, had to meet me by the door of a classroom because it had a window, and I had to watch her for a while as I entered the class, and she had to stay there a while until I felt comfortable enough in class, and then she'd leave. So one time she wasn't there, and I got so, so nervous, I peed in my pants. And then Mrs. Bradford turned to me and said, Oh, Henry! Mike, do you remember that? Now, he's not supposed to say anything, right? The phone's to his ear. He has no energy, nothing. And suddenly, I hear him say, Yes, I remember that. You embarrassed the shit out of me. I tried to explain to people that you couldn't help it. And then I told them I didn't know you. But it was too late. We were friends. I, my belly laugh was still, it was louder than the law allows. I don't think I ever laughed that loud. And he laughed. I could hear him. Randy was surprised because he wasn't supposed to be able to say anything. No energy. But it's amazing what love can do, what friendship can do, what that moment can do. And then I said, Mike, I love you. And let me know when you can that things are okay. Give me a sign. And I said nothing else. And I left him. Three hours later, Randy called me and said, uh, Mike passed. But, she said, he smiled. He was smiling. I don't know what you guys were talking about, but whatever it was, it made him smile. And I thank you for that. And I said to Randy, no. I thank him for that. Remember a few months after that, I remember, I'm in a, uh, in a restaurant and I go to the restroom and uh, I'm at a urinal and next to me is a really older gentleman, much older than me. And he looks at me and he says, oh my God, I almost couldn't hold it and I haven't peed in my pants since kindergarten. <gasps> I was looking up in the sky saying, Mike, is that you? <laughs> Thought it was a sign, but it wasn't. The real sign is that he gave me an opportunity to experience that episode so that I had something to share with people a moment of my life that I could share with you that I will never forget. You know, for so many, myself included, storytelling is a way to let that moment frozen in time to unfold and thaw. Stories can take listeners on journeys and return them safely to the present. Each of us are born like a blank page and each page contains space for a story. Our life is a story, our story is our life. Folk teller 
Joel Ben Izzy is a person I am pro- so proud to call a friend. He serves up messages about life through so many folktales that offer more than just a parable. They tend to validate who we are as human beings. Let me tell you one of my favorite stories about the cricket. Once, once when the world was young, there lived a cricket who dreamed of jumping to the moon. He wanted nothing more than to look down and see the earth. Night after night, he jumped as high as he could, occasionally reaching the low branches of a tree and sometimes even the upper ones, but he never came close to the moon. The other crickets who lived in the valley scoffed at his foolish notions. The moon, they laughed, ridiculous, impossible. Undaunted, he kept on jumping for the moon. Over time, his knees grew weak from too many hard landings. He could no longer jump, nor play his evening songs. The other crickets all told jokes about him. Still, he kept on trying climbing slowly up the trees until the day he died. Even after he was gone, the jokes remained. They grew longer, and in time, they turned into stories. They were passed from one generation to the next and eventually woven into their songs. To this day, you can hear them sing of his adventures. Look, cricket parents say to their children, there he is. You can see his face in the shadows of the moon, watching over us. So it was, after many years, that his dream came true. Every story doesn't necessarily have a happy ending, but that doesn't mean we can't live happily ever after. Tonight we uh, listen to a little folk tale, a little personal story, a personal story from a friend, and a little tip about how you can become a better storyteller just by telling a joke and then making it into a story. We're going to be offering several tips each episode on the story voice. Thank you for giving us a shot and tell your friends about us and join us every week for what I like to consider to be some compelling episodes on the story voice. I am Hank Rubacek and I want you to take care of each other and always Have a story in your heart. Peace.